Welcome to the Thinking Practitioner Podcast, a podcast where we dig into the fascinating issues, conditions, and quandaries in the massage and manual therapy world today. I'm Whitney Lowe. And I'm Till Luca. Welcome, Welcome to, to the, the Thinking, Thinking Practitioner. Practitioner. This episode of the Thinking Practitioner is sponsored by Handspring Publishing. Handspring has become one of the preeminent publishers focused on manual therapy topics, and their catalog reads like a who's who of great pioneers in our field. Handspring also offers a series of webinars called Move to Learn, which are a free 45-minute segments featuring their authors, including a recent one from Till. So head on over to their website at handspringpublishing.com to check those out, and be sure to use the code TTP at checkout for a discount. Thank you again, Handspring. So welcome to the Thinking Practitioner again. Till is off this week, and I'm delighted to be joined this week by my friend and colleague, Robin Anderson, who is the recent, uh, uh, recently elected president of the Massage Therapy Foundation. So uh, Robin, let me just have you take a moment, tell our guests and listeners a little bit about yourself for those who don't know you yet. Sure. Thanks, Whitney, for having me this week. I appreciate it. So uh, my name is Robin Anderson. So I am the director of the Massage Therapy Education Program at the Community College of Baltimore County in Baltimore, Maryland. Um, I've been a massage therapist for 15 years. I am board certified. Um, I specialize in orthopedic techniques and manual lymph drainage. I do run a private practice. Um, with a plastic surgeon in a plastic surgeon's office. So I do a lot of post-op work. Um, so those techniques that I've learned have come in handy over the last few years, but I've worked in um, a bunch of different settings. I mean, I've done the spa thing, I've done you know private practice, I've worked in occupational health clinics, um, hospital settings. So I've, I've worked in pretty much every setting there is. So, and then I also have a background in ergonomics assessment. So that was one of the skills that I picked up in working in occupational health. And um, it's really helped my um, career in terms of practice um, as well as in education. So, You know, the thing that uh, continues to amaze me, and you, you, you continue to inspire and boggle me so frequently, just any one of those positions, the Massage Therapy Foundation or running the CCBC program in your private practice could be more than a full-time job for you. And I don't know how you juggle all three of those and then still continue to have a life uh, alongside. I, I don't know either. So I, yeah. I, when people ask me, so you have a full-time job? I'm like, no, I kind of have three jobs. <laughs> so, yeah. And they're just like, oh my word. So, yeah. but I really only practice one or two days a week. You know, foundation stuff is stuff that just has come up. You know, that's become more of a prominent uh, responsibility, of course, becoming president. Yeah. And then of course my full-time job. So, Great. so you recently, when, uh, you recently took on this position of the presidency of the massage therapy foundation. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about what the foundation does and what it's all about for those people who are not really familiar about it? Lots of people have heard about it, but don't really have a good understanding of what the foundation is about. Okay, sure. So the Massage Therapy Foundation, um, it, our goal or our mission is to support research, uh, community service and education for the massage therapy profession. We are a nonprofit organization. Um, so every dollar that we break in is, is put back into programs, grants, um, projects that help to support the profession. So uh, we also um, fund a peer reviewed research journal called the International Journal, um, International journal of Therapeutic Massage and Body Work. So um, we support that as well as um, student case report contest. We support uh, research grants. We um, do community service grants, so which help to serve underprivileged and underserved populations in, the, in need who may not have access to massage therapy. So I think, um, and then we also produce uh, eBooks and other types of resources that can be used either in a practice office or in an educational setting. Um, we really um, strive very hard to make sure that we have tons of those materials available to people so that way they can stay evidence informed in the field of massage therapy. Yeah. Um, can you make a, a brief distinction and tell us a little bit about the importance of some things with, I want to focus on the journal for a moment because I get this sure. question all the time from people who I think, uh, and again, um, you and I have talked about this at, at length, and we'll probably get into this again here. But, you know, the fact that our profession 
doesn't really exist within uh, so the more traditional kind of academic models has some um, uh, challenges for us. And in particular, what I run across frequently is uh, people uh, not quite understanding the difference between peer-reviewed research that might be published in something like the IJTNB versus that which appears in a popular trade publication. So um, can you give me a little bit of just, uh, you know, uh, again, what what is the kind of that distinction between some of those uh, popular culture publications and those in, in what what is really considered peer-reviewed research? Sure. So when we talk about a, pra- a trade publication, generally somebody, there's an author that may have read an article or may have been understanding of an article and they summarize it and they put it in that that trade journal or it even could just be somebody who's a subject matter expert who may have done some anecdotal stuff or even done some research themselves but they've written an article about it so and it's not any different than if you were to read time magazine or any other magazine it is not peer-reviewed peer-reviewed means that you actually have colleagues people with educational research backgrounds massage therapy backgrounds who actually read your work um, anonymously. So you don't know when you submit your research, you don't know who's reviewing it. There is criteria that you have to meet. Um, It has to be uh, completely uh, referenced in a proper format with all the different resources that have been used. And it is reviewed and you're supposed to make edits and and, um, updates to it to meet that criteria. So, but the objective is to try to make sure that it is viable research. Lots of people write articles, but there may not be any data or support to back it up. In a peer reviewed journal, that's what those peer reviewers do, is make sure that they ask the why, how did you get this information? How did this study work? In a trade publication, that doesn't happen. It's just literally being written. Now you can certainly have references, with a trade publication, but it's not the same thing. It's, it's yeah. definitely much more strictly, um, you know, uh, reviewed. Yeah, and I think that's such an important distinction because there is a, I think, a misperception oftentimes that just because something got published in a publication that it's viable and accurate. And I've right. certainly written my fair share of letters to the editor over the years about stuff that got published in a lot of our trade right. publications and just said, you know, I'm sorry, but this is this is bunk. You know, it's just right, it's just right. not true, um, right. and that's that's an important part of of uh, developing that sort of of critical thinking process of recognizing how to see stuff that's that's not so accurate. There, um, mm-hmm. tell me a little bit about your um, background with the foundation. How did you get interested in and in, you know working with the foundation in general? Well, believe it or not, the foundation has been a part of my my uh, profession ever since the very beginning. When I was a student, I actually entered the student case report contest and I won. <laughs> and I, right. won, I won a bronze level award. I didn't so, realize that. I mean, That's great. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. Um, and I, I wrote my uh, I wrote my case report on the effects of massage with rheumatoid arthritis. So and then a couple of years later, I also entered the practitioner report or case report contest when they used to have that. And I got an honorable mention with that one. And then a few years later, um, at a conference, I was uh, talking with Brent Jackson, who's a uh, he's a colleague of ours, and um, and he said, you know, you really should, you know, volunteer with some, you know, the committees. And I said, mm, sure, I would love to do that. I mean, I've always loved the foundation. So I started out serving on education committee and community service grant committee, and then probably about a, a couple years later, I was asked to join the board of trustees. And since that time, um, I've served on as a vice president for a year and then president elect last year and then president this year. So wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So um, tell me about your perspective on kind of some of the things that the foundation does, but in in particular about disseminating and getting research out to the public. You know, we hear all the time from, you know, the media or other people in our profession. Lots of people say, it's really important to keep up with research. That's, this is, you know, uh, so how does that impact the average massage therapist on a day-to-day basis? Because there's a lot of people that say, you know, like, I don't, you know, I don't read that. I, I have to be honest with you and tell you, I even have had a, one of the very prominent educators in our field say to me one time, oh yeah, you read all that research and stuff. And I just, I don't bother getting into that. <laughs> I was really kind of astonished. Wow. Um, but tell me, what is your sense of, you know, how do you describe this to people? What's the real importance of 
you know, research in terms of how it affects, it affects the average massage therapist practice on a day-to-day -day basis? Well, I actually teach a research course as part of my program here in Baltimore. And one of the things that I explain to my students, because I usually get that kind of feedback from them. I mean, they're like, I want to learn massage therapy. I don't want to read research. I hate yeah. writing research papers. I get that feedback all the time. Yeah. So I point out to them, one of the resources that actually the, uh, the foundation has that I absolutely love is the uh, five myths and truths of massage therapy. Mm -hmm. And I point out to them in that ebook that there are things in that book that was taught to me when I was in school. But if I didn't read research and I didn't pay attention to that, I would still be passing those misnomers and that inaccurate information to my clients, to you as my students. So that's the importance of it is that you need to stay relevant. And most healthcare practitioners, most, have to do this as part of their profession to stay relevant, to stay current. You know, things change in the healthcare and wellness industry very rapidly. And so it's important to make sure that you stay on top of that. Now, when you get that pushback from people and they're like, well, I can't sit there and read for hours and hours on this stuff. This is where the Massage Therapy Foundation, we've kind of responded to that sort of need. We have resources like infographics where you can print out a card on very common conditions that have been researched and you could print those out and you could give them to your clients to um, give them information about that particular condition and why you're taking a particular approach with their treatment. Um, other things that you can do is listen to the Research Perch podcast that we have. So if you don't want to read it, well, maybe you'd like to hear a 20 minute or 30 minute, you know, episode from the researcher themselves or people who are experts on a particular topic about the research on a particular topic. And that helps you to stay relevant. Um, so I tell my students, you know, yes, you can read the stuff that's in your trade publications. I appreciate that. But you really do need to pay attention to the trends of things that are happening. And and one that was the most significant that I pointed out to them, and you are, I'm sure you're aware of this, Whitney, is the systematic reviews that came out just a couple of years ago with regards to pain management and massage therapy and how um, important that research was, um, especially now while we're in the midst of opioid, opioid crisis and we're um, dealing with COVID and all this other stuff. I mean, pain, chronic pain, different types of pain, very important. It's our wheelhouse as massage therapists. So yeah. we can have a positive impact. And I and when I showed them that it's like basically 120 pages worth of text, they're like, oh my God, I am not going to read that. I'm like, you don't have to. We actually yeah. have these simplified things. And when you give those to your, your, your clients and your patients, or if you are well-versed in it, that makes you a much more relevant practitioner because you're yeah. talking about the latest and greatest information about it. Yeah. So. For those people who are not really uh, well-versed in some of the terminology here, can you uh, all speak for just a moment about why something like a systematic review is so pertinent and important as opposed to a single individual study about something that might have come out? Like, what is a systematic review and why does that matter? Okay. So systematic review is one of the highest levels of uh, quality of research. Uh, there is a pyramid, and I'm going to reference my friend Ru Ruth Werner here because I know that she's put this in her textbooks. Um, there is a Oxford pyramid where you have the lowest bottom of the triangle or the pyramid are anecdotes or case studies or case reports. So these are all just individual cases of, you know, just noted information about something they applied a treatment and they got an outcome. But as you go up that pyramid, um, things like uh, randomized controlled trials where you have your, the patients or the study subjects and the researchers are blinded. So they don't know where the treatment goes or who got the right treatment or who got a placebo or a sham treatment. And I know I'm sh really throwing out a lot of terminology here, but I guess what I'm getting at is that you work up that ladder and then the systematic review actually takes a look at everything below it and analyzes that data, analyzes that information and says, well, do we have a, a consistent um, trend here that shows that it should become uh, a standardized practice or it should become part of evidence-based practice? And when you have enough of that information, that's where that becomes so important is that it looks at everything. 
So yeah. all the different types of studies. Yeah. And I think that's one of the other really valuable points is that you you get better information by consolidating a lot of different perspectives about things. And and you know, keep in mind that each study has strengths and weaknesses. And you know, you can't rely on one single study to tell you things, sure. but a systematic review does a better job of filtering out those um key factors of, of strengths and weaknesses to give you a better cl clinical picture of things that are going on oftentimes, I think. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And exactly. Because I, a lot of times when I talk to my students about it, I said, um, pharmaceuticals tend to have the best sort of um, reference in terms of the different types of evidence, because they will go up that chain very easily. And you can see the case studies, then you can see the, you know, the clinical trials, and then you can see the other information. You can see how that's how they determine the efficacy of any particular drug or treatment. I mean, Currently, I'm sure that's what the CDC did when they looked at the evidence for the, the COVID vaccines that are being used today. So it's, it's because they went through that process. Yeah. So, I've got so. another question for you around this, too, in terms of, of educational things, because this came up in a discussion in a, um, an online conference I was in this past weekend when we were talking about how do you get practitioners to develop that uh, a bit more of a sort of an evidence-based perspective to to begin looking at things and become critical of the literature they read and, you know, analyze things and look at stuff and say, like, is this, is this done well? Does this really make sense? Or how does this conflict with what I learned when I was in school? These are all things that seem to come from developing a lot more of sort of critical thinking processes. So uh, as an educator and a program de uh, developer too, I, I'm curious from that perspective, as well as from the foundation perspective, what can we be doing in our field to help um, encourage better training and development of, of evidence-informed thinkers in our, in our field? Well, I think we have to take the, um, the scary or, or take the, the, the fear of research out of people. Um, I really think it's something that should be an entry-level education because if you don't learn to do it from the very beginning, it's really hard to understand the reasons why you do it later on. Um, yeah. Secondly, when I teach it to students, when I teach it to, um, you know, continuing education courses, workshops and so forth, what the two things that I tell um, my learners is, is this generalizable? Can it be applied to the masses? What you're reading, can that be applied to the masses of anybody who has that particular condition? And number two, is it reproducible? That's the key for me. And um, whenever I read something and whenever I have my students read something and I, I particularly make them go to the method section more than anything else, not even just the results, how the method section of the, each of those research studies are, are written. Can they understand it? Can they duplicate it? Does it make sense to them? And then, you know, when we do talk about results and of course, the first thing that that students or, you know, are practitioners says, oh my God, all those numbers, what do they mean? What do they yeah. mean? You know what? And I said, you know what? Don't, don't look at the numbers. I actually look at the discussion section because mm -hmm. sometimes not that the, the, the data doesn't matter, but if you don't understand it, trying to either give them a hard crash course in statistics is not necessarily an easy thing to do. You can yeah. point out a couple of simple things, but what I have them do is go to the results section. And if it seems like what they're saying isn't really supported by the data tables that they're showing. And they're really working hard to try to sell it to you without a whole lot of, of backing up that, yes, we believe what we got is great or no, we didn't get it. That's where you start to question it and you start to question the efficacy. Yeah. And so that's, um, that's what I usually tell my students to do. But mainly what I want them to understand is when they look at something, you know, first of all, it never hurts to look up a particular diagnosis or disease or condition. You know, we all go to school. I don't remember everything that I studied in my pathology and pharmacology class. So sometimes we have to look those things up. And when we do look them up, we should look for, is there anything current that's being done that maybe I could use in the treatment room that could help my client or patient? And yeah. that, that's kind of the mindset that I have. And I try to get my students to think that way too. And say, and I've even told them the things I'm going to teach you today may be irrelevant in 10 years. Yeah. And I, and I'm okay with you doing that. You know, don't say, well, that's the way I was taught. That's, you know, right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I was uh, mentioning this in the thing this past weekend too. There was a, a quote that I've heard a number of times and came across from, um, I 
can't remember the gentleman's name. I think it was David Sackett. Uh, it was his his name that was the considered the father of evidence based medicine. Who told a bunch of medical school students, half of what you learn in medical school will be either dead wrong or out of date in five years from now. Right. The problem is we don't know which half. And so <laughs> right. the the thing is that what what you really need to do is to learn how to become a good learner. And I think that's yeah. where the, the critique becomes. And because this is the other thing, I see this a lot, you know, in looking at things and also talking to people about how to begin looking at research critically and analyzing things. You got to keep in mind uh, a lot of times the, there's a tremendous amount of pressure on a lot of people in the academic world to publish research. And oftentimes things get published, not because they're really a great research question, but because it's something they could figure out a way to study. So it's almost like, right. you know, here's something that we can measure. All right, let's write a study around it. When is you right. also really want to ask, what's the real real world application of this information? And does it really turn into something that really is, is useful and relevant for us? Because a lot of times you'll see some of these things done and you actually, like you mentioned, dig into the methodology and look at these things and say like, yeah, but nobody actually does. Like they measure, you know, what's the beneficial effect on circulation from, you know, 25 uh, continuous petrissage strokes done on the patellar tendon. It's like, you know, Interesting that you figured that out, but nobody does that. You know, it's just right. not realistic. Right. <laughs> yeah. right. Well, I can relate to that. I, I did do um, a research study um, on the educational side of things. Um, I took the combination of my um, ergonomics experience, um, my practitioner experience, and then my educational training to do a research study on studying how you could teach body mechanics to students using ergonomics um, methods. And um, yeah, it was part of my master's degree. It was part of my thesis presentation. So yes, I did have to do that. Yeah. But um, I, I actually, um, it wasn't a requirement. I actually talked to my uh, my professor and I said, look, I would really actually like to do this study. I actually, and she walked me through the IRB process, which IRB is Institutional Review Board. Um, I got walked her through that process. I collected data on my students. And then I went through the statistical analysis, which for me, I, like most massage therapists, I am not a numbers person. So that was really difficult for yeah. me to do that part. But we did it. And, you know, it was it was good. And and then I was able to write it up and 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 publish it. So I actually have a colleague in uh, Michigan that wants to duplicate the study. And um, I'm excited that she's interested in doing that. So it's pretty cool. That's great. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> what What do you tell your students or the people who come to you? You know, we've talked frequently, you know, here about, you know, the people that just don't want to get into the whole research world and they don't want to have to, to be delving into this stuff a lot. But what about those people who do, like who are curious about, like, I'd like to know how to get more involved with this. This is really kind of interesting. I'd like to help our profession. Do you have suggestions mm -hmm. or hints or ideas for people like how do they first get started doing something that might be relevant to to help move us forward and participating in that? So there's a couple things you can do. Um, definitely, you could read some of the resources that we have on the foundation's website. We have a ton of stuff there on how to connect with a researcher, how to um, you know think about doing research, how to understand it. Um, you know, find a topic that interests you. I always tell my students write a case report first um, because that's an easiest mm -hmm. way to study is to do it. And there's resources actually with the IJTMB as well as on our site. Um, on how to write a case report. And that's just as simple as I have this one client that had a unique condition and I had an idea of how I wanted to do it. And this is how I did it and I described it and this is what the results are. The hardest part about writing a case report for most people or just any type of research is how do I measure it? M massage therapy is very hard to measure. Um, mm -hmm. We don't have dosages like we do in you know, medication or even in physical therapy. There's a certain like criteria of how many sessions or how many exercises and so forth. We don't have that with massage therapy. It is very customized to each individual client based on the practitioner and what they can do. Yeah. But, you know, there are things that you can use. And I do reference the PT world a lot because they use a lot of tools and surveys and things that we could definitely use in our practice too. For example, the DASH, you know, survey, you know, which is disability of arm, um, shoulder and, and, um, hand. 
And you know that you can definitely use the information that's on that survey to help evaluate your client to see if you can get results if you're working on arm, shoulder, or hand. Mm -hmm. um, a goniometer measures range of motion so that you can easily measure before and after to see if you had any effect. You know, so there are ways that you can collect information. You just got to do a little bit of, you know, thinking, a little bit yeah. of thinking about how to do it. So and just saying you have great results just isn't enough. You have to think analytically. Um, and I know that's difficult, but a case report is the best way to start. And then once you feel like you've gotten your feet wet with that, then you could try to, you know, do a case series, work on a, you know, something else. I'm actually working on a case series with the, the plastic surgeon that I practice with because, We've just had such wonderful results postoperatively with all of his body contouring patients that, and I know there's no research out there really to support it that specifically yeah. says massage therapy and liposuction and massage therapy in this. So we're trying to put it together a case series to get that published. So. Yeah, that's great. And I think, you know, one of the big challenges when people start doing something like that with, with case study reports, and especially if you haven't been sort of immersed in, um, sort of being critical about looking at evidence and things like that is to fall victim to what we call the post hoc fallacy, which is making assumptions that like, okay, I had this client that had a shoulder problem and I did so-and-so. Um, and so therefore this worked and that's why they got better. And like right. making a determination about why there was a beneficial change and what happened when you're not discount, you're not, you're not counting many of the different factors in there that could have right. been, and we have to be, really careful sometimes about jumping to saying, oh, because I did this, that produced that result and, and that kind of solution there. So yep. that's, that would that be is called, a real uh, That would be called confounding variables there, Whitney. Exactly. <laughs> good, good. So we need a, maybe a, you know, a, a, a nice little, well, do you have anything with the foundation, like a little glossary of, of those kinds of uh, collection of important terms or things like that? We do. We do. Actually, in the ebook section of the website, um, there is a, a an ebook on how to teach or teaching research to students. And there's actually a chapter in there that is a glossary that has all of those different types of terms. It also has that Oxford pyramid in there that we were just discussing. So it has that information in there. So just because you're not an educator doesn't mean you can't read that book and, and get some information out of it. So, yeah. but we wrote it with the perspective of educators and how they could do things in the classroom for their students. But that doesn't mean that anyone couldn't read it and, and it, you can download it for free. Um, so there's no cost involved and um, it's helpful. I think. Yeah, great. Well, I want to uh, sort of shift track a little bit now to um, job number two of yours <laughs> and talk about your, your role a little bit at, at CCBC with, um, you know, directing and developing curriculum there, because this is another place where, you know, you and I, uh, I believe, love to live in, in the discussions of instructional design and curriculum development and things like that. Right. One of the things that I have continuously lamented over the years of watching is um, what I feel to be some real challenges that are facing our field in that we have evolved so many massage schools in this country and we have not really evolved the educators to staff those schools or really the, the skill set needed to be involved with curriculum development. And you've done some specific work and, and graduate work in particular in this area. And I want to know, like, what, what kind of things do you see as, as some of the biggest um, maybe deficiencies that we have with uh, the our educational programs that, because to me, this impacts the future of our profession. So if we don't mm -hmm. look at this whole role of how are we doing in educating our future clinicians? Um, and that starts with the educators themselves. You know, how do we grow and where does the profession go in the future? So um, what do you see as kind of like some of our biggest challenges in those areas? Well, I feel like the educational aspects are in sort of a, a, a mid shift at the moment, especially because of COVID. Um, because, you know, people, you know, in the last year or so, we've been shifting to more online education. I mean, I had to put all of my students online you know, for quite some time, they actually still are line, online right now. Um, we're actually doing a 70-30 split where 70% of their um, lecture and didactic material is being taught online, but then they come to campus for clinics and labs and so forth. 
Um, so I feel like that online education element has creeped its way into um, the educational model. But also, and just let me interrupt for just a second and ask, like, yeah. what's your, have you got any kind of analysis at this point, like, you know, the effectiveness of that versus what you were doing previously? And, and I recognize that everybody was really thrust into emergency remote yeah. teaching, which is a bit different. But right. do you, like now that you've been, we're almost, you know, kind of a, almost a year out from where yeah. many people were making that move. Do you have any kind of analysis of like, or do you want to keep any of this kind of approach when the COVID is over? Well, I actually started doing it about a year or two before COVID happened. I mm -hmm. actually started moving some of my courses completely online, one of which was actually the research course that I taught yeah. because I felt that even though I could teach in the classroom, is the information that I was doing in person, was it any better or any um any more substantive when I taught it in person as opposed to an online asynchronous course. And when I say asynchronous, meaning like on a weekly basis, you can watch a lecture, you can do your work by a certain due date, but you don't have to be in class at a specific time or date. Um, you usually have windows where you can submit, you know, your ex assignments, your exams, so forth. Um, so I had already started doing that. And I have to say, I was very thankful that I did because okay, when yeah. COVID happened, uh -huh. it was like, okay, I know what to do now. I know, I mean, and I could convert the classes. So to get back to your original question about um, instructional design and, and about the educational model, I think one of the biggest problems we have is that we're not very consistent in our educational structure. And some of that problem has to do with varying from state to state and the state requirements. Some of that has to do with um, just the envision of what is considered entry level knowledge and what isn't. And I know that we've gotten into discussions about, well, you know, practice settings don't matter or they do matter. You know, it, my, my personal opinion is at any given time, in any location that you are practicing in, you would have to know any different types of pathologies, conditions, where you would have to make critical thinking judgment calls, whether they're in a spa or a hospital, mm -hmm. you would have to make a judgment call as to whether or not massage therapy is appropriate in either setting. And so my feeling is, is that because so many of us want to be considered healthcare professionals, that seems to be the trend. If that's the way you want to be, then you have to step up your level of education. You really do. And that yeah. means being on the same playing field as um, those who are autonomous and can take individual responsibility for their cl their clients. So you have to remember that even those of us who run private practices, when somebody gets on their table, if you injure them, it's your fault. I mean, mm -hmm. you can be sued for malpractice. But even if you work in a franchise location, if you injure them, you can still be sued for malpractice. It doesn't matter. Yeah. So, and that's no different than a doctor, a nurse, um, you know, a PA, a uh, physical therapist, PTA. So I guess my point is, is that we need to start thinking along those lines. I think we tend to forget that and we just say, oh, it's just massage. I don't agree with that at all. And then yeah. when you see how people are starting to take advantage of our profession in, you know, trying to not to practice without a license and so forth, it just downplays the whole field. Yeah. So my feeling is it's not that we're trying to exclude people out of the profession. We're just trying to get them up to par with people who are doing the same level of work that we're doing. And so, yes, it does require a little bit more education. And I think yeah. it's important. So there's been this argument frequently in our profession about whether or not we need some type of tiered credentialing, you know, just a base level for people who want to work in environments that are not really oriented toward healthcare versus those right. that are. But what is your sense of, of that, do you think that's something that should happen at entry level, or is that something that where there should be distinctions more at the postgraduate, you know, post schooling uh, level, like it is in some other professions? Well, not to to compare us to medical doctors, but if you really think about it, the way that um, you know doctors when they go to med school first, they all go through a basic level of training just to get into med school to become doctors. But then at some point they pick specialties that they go into. And then that's where their that's their pathway. You're not going to go to a plastic surgeon if you're having problems with your knee. 
-hmm. Okay. And if you're having intestinal problems, you're not going to go to a dermatologist. So I guess my point is, is that we have massage therapists who have specialties, you know, people who work with athletes specifically, you know, I work in a plastic surgeon's office. Um, there are others that like to do palliative care and like to do hospice. There's others who like to work in a spa environment. There are some basics that definitely go across the board, but I do think that as you go into um, more specific locations or more specific um, pathways, that there should be additional training beyond that. So yeah. tiered, I don't know if tiered is the right way to say it, but maybe, um, you know, we all have the same base level because, I mean, MDs are still MDs, right? Mm -hmm. But then if they have their board certification in a specific um a specific pathway then they're board certified in orthopedics or board certified in plastics or board certified in you know otolaryngology um that's what i'd like to see us do i think yeah. then it would make things a little bit clearer to the commute the consumer and the patient because that's the one thing that i run into a lot in my practice is that i'll have somebody say yeah somebody said they did lymphatic drainage but it clearly didn't help Mm -hmm. And they didn't know what they were doing. But then after they got off my table, they were like, wow, you really know what you're doing. And I could explain it to them and I could tell them why it was being done and their evidence that goes behind what I'm doing. See, that's where you can tell where someone is a, is a specialist or whether or not they're just dabbling in it. Yeah. And that's the thing that I, I, I truly feel like is difficult is that there's many therapists who think that they are skilled in certain things, but they're really not. Yeah. And, and I don't mean that derogatory. I just mean it is that it's just it, it, it's what dilutes the message about what we do and yeah. why and I we think have a hard time. Yeah that, yeah, that model is really perpetuated a great deal by the fact that, you know, so many people get their base level education and then they get their, you know, a lot of their real world application in uh, experiential learning after they leave and in continuing education right. workshops. And it's, right. you know, very, there's a large number of people out there in sort of on the, on the CE workshop circuit who say, all right, you know, come take my two day weekend class and then I'll give, I'll certify you in my method, whatever right. that happens to be. And now you think you really know a lot of stuff because you took um, a two day workshop with these folks. And, right. um, you know, that's a whole different story of, you know, getting into why, cramming information into, you know, 16 hours over a two day period is not really good learning. Right. Um, but there's all kinds of other facets of that that make it more problematic as well. But I want to come back to this uh, circle back around when we talk about sort of uh, entry training requirements, because this is another big um, argument and discussion that's been prevalent in our field for so long. And I'm curious to hear your perspective about this. I mean, do you, there's a lot of people who say, we're never going to be taken seriously until massage therapy is a degree program. Um, you know, what are your thoughts on that in terms of whether or not we should be a degree program and have, you know, a, a similar type of base level training that you would get um, in a, in a, a degree, a, you know, a bachelor's degree, for example? Well, my program is currently an associate's degree. Um, so, but yeah, I have several colleagues across the country who teach in a community college setting and they all have um, credit certificate programs. So, you know, I, I agree with them to a certain perspective because in working with medical professionals and actually um, Doug Nelson, the previous president, you know, colleague of both of ours, uh, and I have had this conversation when we've talked to medical professionals who refer clients to us or, um, you know, or collaborate with us in terms of patient care. And one of the things that the doctors say is, where can I find more people like you? Where yeah. can I find more practitioners like you? Because I, can't, I did not know that this existed. And if I knew that, how do I find these people? And the sad part is, is we can't answer them honestly. Yeah. Because, and, and that's where the difficulty lies. So while I know this is not a popular opinion, I do think that if we had more of a standardized level of education, whether it's an associate's degree or a credit certificate, I, I just think that that's, it, it seems like it's the right thing to do. You have to look at other practitioners like athletic trainers, for example. Athletic trainers actually do a lot of the same things that we do as massage therapists, but then they also do the training aspects. That's a master's level degree, mm -hmm. okay? How is it that we can do such a, a low, and I don't want to say low level, but that's really not a good word, but just such a basic level of training 
in six months or eight months or, you know, in a rushed period of time that is equivalent, equivalent to half of what an athletic trainer learns in their entire master's degree. Yeah. The second thing is, in my experience with students coming into entry level and just using myself as an example, never say never. I've gone back to school three times in mm -hmm. my lifetime. Yeah. And and the thing, and it actually considered a fourth. So, but uh, Well, you may not is, be done yet. That's right. Yeah, I might not be done yet. I don't know. But I guess my point is, is that if you have college credit, and, and this kind of goes back to the beginning of our conversation, Whitney, where how do people get into research? Well, what if you do have that person that went to massage school and then they want to get their master's degree and then they want to get their doctoral degree and they want to do research. They want to become a researcher. Yeah. The way our educational systems is set up right now, those pathways are not easy. They're mm -hmm. not easy at all. A lot of them are retaking classes. Like I've had several students come to my program and saying, why do I have to retake anatomy and physiology? I took it and I, I know it. I can't give you college credit for something that isn't an accredited institution. Yeah. So I know that there's um, a real backlash about that. And I know colleges and universities have very strict policies. I get it. My daughter transferred from one four-year institution to another one, and it was a nightmare. And um, I, I do think that there's some definite reforms that need to happen at that level. But I just feel like it allows us to get true credit for what we know and what we do. And, and it's not that I don't think that there are some private independent schools out there that are not good. I know many people who own schools that are fabulous instructors, that are fabulous school owners and do a great job of teaching their students and preparing them for the workforce. But I have to tell you, that's not the norm. Mm -hmm. um, I would yeah. say that the majority of schools that are open, that's more the exception than the rule. And that's not right. It, it yeah. shouldn't be that way. Um, I think we all need to follow a standard. And I guess that's the reason why I would like to see a standard level of education across the board that was equivalent. And then, you know, once we can do that, then I think that that would help our legitimacy factor and kind of bring it back to what Doug and I were saying about then there's more of us out there that, yeah. that you can you can find and you can you can be in that setting if you want to be. Yeah. So. That certainly has been um, you know, uh, one of my primary interests in focusing on you know the world of credentialing um, for a lot of years, just because I, I see this as a bigger picture problem. I see this yeah. as like, how do we move the profession forward for acceptance and recognition by other uh, individuals associated with the healthcare system? And that, that always comes back to some, some aspect of credentialing and education and standard building and, and things like that. And it is clearly a very thorny issue because there's a lot of other things that have to be considered. I mean, right now, I think, I think, you know, and, and COVID has been just like a gasoline accelerant poured on this process <laughs> yeah. of seeing like, you know, for, I mean, I was, you're hearing this argument a lot from people who are in traditional, like outside of our profession, you know, just traditional college programs when COVID hit and all of a sudden they, you know, were do doing this um, complete training by uh, online education. And these parents are saying like, wait a minute, I'm paying, you know, $25,000 a year for this when watching their, you know, kids just sit in the, in their bedroom on Zoom and, and like get some not great quality kind of educational instances. And if you look at, again, at the, uh, the costs of traditional college degrees uh, and the rate of inflation over the last 30 years, it's, you know, it outpaces healthcare. That's um, true. And yeah. I think that a lot of these things bring up a, a lot of challenging questions for people, especially in our field, when we see we have so many people who leave our field after a relatively short number of years, uh, they are going to be considering that whole return on investment idea and like, how much is it going to cost to become a massage therapist and how much am I going to get back of this kind of thing? So um, I agree with you. It's just right. we, we have to look at these things, but boy, it's, it's thorny issues that... Um, don't have any easy solutions, yeah. I'm sure, because if it was easy, we would have done it a long time ago. Um, right. So, well, one, I wanted to just say that there's one argument that you can make for this. Part of it is, you know, so many of us want to be able to be accepting insurance. You know, I know that that comes up a lot in conversation. And, you know, I think they are kind of sort of pushing for this, because if you think about it, with insurance companies, they look for the credentialing. 
they're the ones that are looking for it. They don't want just anybody off the street to be able to just submit an insurance claim for massage therapy. So, um, you know, I, and again, it, it goes back to malpractice and it goes back to, you know, what's reasonable coverage. So if you have different levels of education, um, and again, you're taking responsibility for the client that it becomes a thorny issue, which is why a lot of the, um, insurance companies don't cover massage and they'd yeah. like to see it, um, done that way. And of course, consumers want it because they're paying a ton for health insurance and, yeah. and they want to use, especially when they're using it for chronic pain. So yeah, it's just that something is- to think about. Absolutely true. It will. Uh, it is, you know, becoming a, a a bigger and bigger factor in the both the recognition and and the the implementation of massage therapy into other healthcare environments. And you know, even if you don't want to get into the process of doing the insurance billing yourselves, right? Um, as you mentioned, it is a critical part of the overall perception and acceptance of massage as a viable means of of a healthcare approach for so many individuals and especially those who would not have financial access to our, our treatments without it. So, um, yeah, it's a big one coming down the road here. Yeah. So, well, I want to wrap up with one uh, last question. I just want to ask you like, what is your, what we call a BHAG, your big, hairy, audacious goal for, I mean, you've done some stupendous things throughout your career, but what do you see? Do you have like any big bucket list items that you really want to see happen? Um, that are on your on your horizon? Oh, well, I think we kind of talked about that already, uh, Whitney. I, I would like to see us have standardized education. I, I think yeah. there are some elements within our profession that have the potential to create that standardization. And I, I would like to see that happen because, as I said, you know, I, I still don't know what I want to be when I grow up. And <laughs> I've gone yeah. back to school three times and, you know, maybe another time. And I'm sure that there are lots of people just like me that way back when, when I started my bachelor's degree, you know, in sports journalism, you know, doing radio broadcasting, I never thought, you know, 15 years later that I would be, you know, a massage therapist and, you know, doing all this other right. stuff. So, yeah. but it was that basic degree that allowed me to only have to take the specific classes needed to do massage. So, but then, you know, I was able to use that, some of that credit to get into my master's program. I'd like to see people have that ability to have stackable credentials or stackable um, degrees or, or something to that nature, whether it's through board certification, college certificates, I I don't know. Um, But I think we have to let go of what we did before and we have to change our way of thinking. And then just to touch on online education a little bit, I, I know that people are struggling with that, you know, and as you mentioned, um, remote learning is not the same thing as online education. That is definitely true. And I would say that in my experience, since I've been working with this for a couple of years, I'm not really seeing much of a difference in the um, the outcomes with the mm-hmm. uh, with the students. I think they're pretty on par. You know, the uh, assignments that I, I did in my research class are the same assignments that I do in the online research class. And they're, some of them are actually even better because yeah. the students are having more time to read the material, rewatch the videos, the lecture videos if they want to, so they don't get to just hear me say it once. And especially with a topic like that, where it's so difficult, being able to review it several times helps. So, you know, I do think that there is some value to it, but it has to be done appropriately. You need to evaluate the instructional design. You need to make sure that you're screening people for it appropriately, that who can learn in that environment. Not everybody can. It's not a a viable option for everyone. So I would like to see us sort of shift into into that sort of realm of having options, but options that we can build on in online learning, in um, standardized education, in credentialing. And um, so that way we are becoming more legitimate in in the the public eye. Um, That's what I would like to see happen. I'm tired of the jokes at uh, cocktail parties when we used to have them. Oh, you're a massage therapist. Go ahead and massage me. It's like, no, you can't afford me. Okay. (laughs) So, you know, it's like, I don't just give my services out for free. You know, it's like, you know, so um, that's, I would like to see that for everyone. And I'd like for entry level therapists to, once they've gotten a few years, they can increase their income, not just by taking more clients, but because they're more experienced or because they have more specialty training or because they have that, just like anybody else who has years in the profession. 
You know, you're supposed to be able to increase your income as you put more time in. And I think that may be part of the reason why people are leaving. Yeah, too. right. Mm -hmm. Well, Robin, uh, this has been a wonderful, inspiring for me, obviously, um, <laughs> conversation. I love getting into these discussions with you. And, and I want to <laughs> yeah. thank you again so much for your time. Um, sure. Yeah, Can you let our listeners know um, any other ways if people have additional questions or things maybe they want to pose to you about either the research with the foundation or your training programs at CCBC? How can people find you and get a hold of you? So, um, well, first of all, the resources that we talked about um, from the foundation can be found on the Massage Therapy Foundation's website, which is uh, massagetherapyfoundation.org. Um, probably the best email to reach me at, I mean, I have a couple emails, so I'm going to just give out my, uh, my generic Gmail account. So just because sometimes the CCBC one works and doesn't work. And so, um, so my email address is uh, robinanderson1218 at gmail.com and you can certainly reach out to me by email or um, I actually have a portfolio website called massagetherapyprofessor.com and you can take a look at some of my work there. I have my research up there, some of my presentations and things um, and then you can also message me. There's a contact form there that you can message me. Cool. And, um, what was that again? That was massagetherapyprofessor.com? Professor.com. Yep. Oh, okay. I'll go take a look at that. I wasn't aware of that <laughs> stuff up there. So see well, what kind I of goodies it. you got up I there. I did it for my, uh, for my master's thesis and then I yeah. just converted it and I haven't updated it in a while. So I, I've been a, a tad busy, but yes. I need to update it a little bit. Uh, so to do some more stuff there, but yeah. Yeah. Yeah, great. Well, thank you again so much. It's been a, a joy talking with you. I really appreciate your time today, and uh, we'll look forward to, we'll dive into some other uh, topics like this, hopefully again sometime here in the future. Sure, absolutely. Yeah. Thanks for having me, Whitney. Good, great. So ABMP is proud to sponsor the Thinking Practitioner podcast, and ABMP membership gives massage therapists and body workers exceptional liability insurance, numerous discounts, and great resources to help you thrive like their ABMP podcast, which is available at abmp.com forward slash podcasts or wherever you happen to listen. Even if you're not a member, you can get free access to Massage and Bodywork magazine, where Till and I are both frequent contributors and special offers also for thinking practitioner listeners at abmp.com forward slash thinking. So we thanks again very much to our sponsors and reminder to uh, stop by our sites for show notes, transcripts, and any extras. You can find that over on my site at academyofclinicalmassage.com and over at Till's site at advanced-trainings.com. So please feel free also to drop for us questions or things you'd like to hear us talk about. Email us at info at thethinkingpractitioner.com or you can look for us on social media as well under our names, Till Luca and my name, Whitney Lowe. So thanks again so much for listening. Um, if you will, please follow us on Spotify, rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you happen to be listening. Tell a friend and we look forward to seeing you again in two weeks. Thanks so much. <laughs>